Hello and welcome to our new podcast, Chipping Away, where your hosts Akash and Durga take you on journeys of archaeology and anthropology in South Asia. As archaeologists, we've always liked going out to the field and collecting curious objects, something that stands apart, stands out of its time. That's how we identify if something is old or something is really old. But collecting these curious objects in the landscape has been a feature of human nature throughout time. People have always loved holding objects that are either elements of value, elements of wealth, or just something that is, well, a curiosity. Or sometimes, uh, objects that bring you comfort. Does holding blankets and blankies count? Well, always, I guess, if it gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling on the inside, mm-hmm. you'd want to keep on to that. <laughs> on a more serious note, people have always been collecting objects of or curiosities, have they been called, for a long time. There are examples going back to ancient times, such as Greek, Roman, Chinese, and even Mesopotamia. Some of the oldest exhibits or evidences of what could be considered a museum come from the city of Ur in Mesopotamia. Uh, Sir Leonard Woolley, an archaeologist, while excavating levels of the city of Ur dated to around 6th century BCE, found a chamber that had various antiquities of different time periods collected there. According to him, he interpreted it as the collections of Babylonian kings of their pasts. He even found what he called a museum label that spoke or detailed a particular object in that place. Hmm, that is quite impressive for 6th century BCE. Well, guess everybody had a past. True. <laughs> Hopefully yours doesn't haunt you. <laughs> I'll not hold on to it. Or hold on to it. <laughs> Well, speaking of holding, I guess some of the most important people who hoarded stuff were usually kings or wealthy businessmen. So what we call museums today were primarily or for the first time referred to a collection of Lorenzo di Medici of Florence. So in his uh, collection in the 15th century was referred to for the first time as a museum. Although I would want to challenge you on that. Go for it. Maybe even common people hoarded things, although they were not showcased because they were not deemed important or curious or valuable by the society. That's very possible. But unfortunately, even when we look at the present, most of what we deem worthy of display is something that has some value or is of some wealth. So I Hmm. guess that... Or something that tells a story. Exactly. Or something that has a fun story. Maybe like this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Ouch. I don't want it to be on museum shelf just yet. Okay, okay. Don't worry. I don't think we'll be... We'll survive into the antiquity of time. (laughs) So, museums uh, are a phenomenon that gathered public movement uh, mostly in the 15th, 16th and 17th centuries. One of the earliest museums is that of the Ashmolean Museum at the University of Oxford which was the result of a private collection being donated to the University of Oxford in 1683, which was housed in a separate building for the first time and called a museum. And I think if we look at South Asia, we have similar examples, but instead of a university museum, we have private collection by kings or, like you mentioned, rich people, such as Salajan Museum or 
Museum of Maharaja in Baroda, or several others in Rajasthan, where private possessions of the kings, uh, gifts they received from other rulers, were put on display posthumously as a museum. And slowly, with the development of national identities and a sense of nationalism, people started developing museums of national identity. For example, uh, you had the British Museum, which started in 1759, or the Louvre in mm-hmm. 1793, after the French Revolution, which wanted to, how do you say, bring to the front and to the public and the masses the wealth that was of the rich. And so that everybody post-revolutionary France had access or could, you know, take part and witness the majesty of art and uh, sculptures and the wealth of the past. And what happens in South Asia? I think that museum or the concept of museums comes in pretty late in South Asia around in the 19th century, I believe. Yes. The earliest museum in India is the Indian Museum at Calcutta, which was founded in 1875 to store the collections of the Asiatic Society of Bengal. Apart from these, you also had various other regional museums that came up in different spaces and different time periods, including, say, the National Museum, which opened up in 1949 in New Delhi. Or Or the Prince of Wales Museum, which is now called as Chhatrapati Shivaji Maharaj Vastu Sangharalai, or CSMVS, located in Mumbai. So, museums uh, have also played an important role in the development of the theories and understanding within archaeology, or the sciences in general. For example... Carl Linnaeus, who generated the taxonomy system by which we know all life form today, developed it uh, systematically from various museum collections that he had access to. And also, when mm-hmm. we look at archaeology, the concept of classification of time or the three age system, as we call it, where we divide something into the Stone Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age, was also developed by a museum person, uh, C.J. Thompson, in 1836 who was the curator of the Museum of Northern Antiquities in Copenhagen. So when he was confronted with the museum collections and wanted a system to organize them, he realized that maybe all the artifacts that were made of stone probably belonged to one time, and those made of bronze, which was metal and stronger than stone, but not as strong as iron, was probably before the Iron Age. So by organizing these collections, he developed a temporal framework through which we work too. So I think the dialogue between archaeology or study of the past and museums has been going on for over centuries. I would like to think as long as museums have existed. <laughs> and True. To throw light on this matter today, we have Miss Ruta. Ruta is the assistant curator of education collections at the Baudajilad Museum in Mumbai. Hi, Ruta. Hi, Ruta. Hi, hi, guys. Hope all is treating you well. Yes, so far so good. Can't complain. Let us know, what according to you is a museum? For me, a museum is a space to question a lot of things, question our history um, amidst being surrounded by beautiful yet very provoking objects which are not always shiny and pretty. They can be very hard and heartbreaking. So for me, a museum is that. Interesting. So basically things that evoke a lot of emotions. Yes. Ah, That's a fun way of putting things. So how do you emotionalize the dead? 
I would think of who these people were. We get often so caught up when you're thinking and breaking down the research into theorizing whatever the period and everything. We often forget you're talking about real people. People who lived, people who maybe knew they were a part of something that was being documented, maybe not, maybe they were just doing it and now they stand or represent something much bigger in our scenario and these up people's stories how people interacted i think it's is a fascinating part um in any museum so would you consider this as a conversation between the living and the dead yes and the dead being unwilling passengers in a way yes because we we would never know for sure um what has happened we only know careful construction and thought that has come through us through years of research but we can never actually fully know what it was and i think that is interesting i don't want to romanticize it but it is interesting but if we were to romanticize it a little i think it's like a continuing story yeah absolutely so why don't you tell us a bit about the bhavdajilar museum so bhavdajilar is an interesting space where um you not only see history of bombay but you also see a history of an empire that was asserting its dominance asserting its right to trade in in a environment which was hostile for them from where they came from uh, the british and in a way trying to bring a linear order to the chaos that they were surrounding a chaos that was a chaos because they didn't understand it because of the times people lived in 200 years ago so bahadajilad is a fascinating experiment of what was happening in bombay on a micro level and largely in the empire on a macro level and it is at this crux of globalization of industrialization and of these glorified urban ideas coming forth that bhavdajilad museum was founded as the victoria and albert bombay as it was known for a very long time till 1975 when the name officially changed to bhavdajilad that is very fascinating and with this in mind could you talk a little about how the attitude of museums has changed over time yeah from being um a place to instruct audiences instruction was a favorite word of 19th century victorian era and most of the indian museums the big ones were established during colonial period except of course the national museum but at this point the idea was instruction to give people a space to make them disciplined to make them aware of what was around them in a very albeit sometimes patronizing way to now having a dialogue now not saying that oh yes we are museum of course there is a pedagogy of museums but it's no longer that because we say so you must listen no we will say so because we have a team of professionals with research we w- but we want to hear your views because in the end museums by its essence are public if it's not open to public it's not a museum so from a sort of instruction it slowly traveled to dialogical form yeah so keeping in view this dialogue we see this one aspect that like you said between the past and the present but 
could you also assume that there's a dialogue between the different elements that go into a museum yes absolutely like say for example archaeology how you present it how do you characterize this discourse so the mu- the reason museums are so fascinating is because they're so interdisciplinary you don't just learn about archaeology or just art history or just one thing there are so many layers cross connecting intersecting between all these objects so i i like to think of it as archaeology is the beginning point where you start excavating publishing your research is the middle point where you're discussing theorizing it and museums do the last bit which is bringing all that knowledge all that information forward to the public and saying it in a way everybody can understand and engage with it so archaeology history and museums they're all so interconnected it's interesting because people often see archaeological objects with this fascination as they see any other museum object at the moment it's in a vitrine it's fascinating to people because we love saying that oh you can't touch it but it's so many years old and you are in some way connected to this object so archaeology of course it's a past but in museum it the past is you're confronted with it it's right in front of you it's not some obscure romantic harappan ideology you have heard of in papers people debating about it it's in front of you and sometimes it can be disappointing like how a lot of people say oh i looked at this object which has so many implications like for example the dancing girl but it's tiny same like mona lisa it's it's one of the most well known works of art maybe but when you see it in the museum you're like oh my god that's it so it's it's these <laughs> dual reactions which which are very interesting archaeologically people do expect like beautiful sculptures beautiful objects but they can be also just rocks we know of it as hand axes because we have seen enough but if you did not know prehistory and you were told to look at this rock would you still be interested in it it's it's that interesting a fun fact mona lisa has been voted as one of the three biggest disappointments in the world exactly <laughs> exactly i didn't know that and speaking of objects i was wondering if we can talk about the context so when we find a certain artifact in a trench in at an archaeological site it has its context and the archaeologists sort of narrate the story around it and how do you do that or replicate that in a museum setting that's always a struggle because you don't have the physical environment of the objects where it was made in a museum setting it's always helpful to showcase it with other things that were evolving around the same time in different parts of the world though it leads to this very materialistic breakdown okay this in this section you will see about this period of history that section you will see that period of history and only that material it has a lot of pros and cons but i mean traditionally as museums with limited space there is only so much you can do and only so much you can offer often a lot of museums will try to use technology or simple gimmicky dioramas like a shawl thrown randomly near a teapot to sort of indicate the opulence and the splendor which i mean i personally don't like it but i i see the popular appeal of it to uh, this amazing museum experience which i'll never forget of uh, the museum in bologna where they had this whole auditorium that brought past, brought alive the archaeological excavation the research by just giving this sensory fantastic experience which i have 
not seen anywhere else so that was really amazing and yeah context is a way it's a struggle how to construct context in museums but the best way you can do it is have as much information out there though maybe 2% of your audience will actually read that information but it's all in the display the notes everything that's all you can do if you're generating a narrative uh, would you do that based on the object and the collections do you have or the theme that you want to propagate in a museum i think of course objects lead you to telling the narrative but you can flip the narratives over its head it's not always dependent on the object yeah and i think also your narrative is so influenced by the time you're in with the same objects the narrative of the bhavdajilad would be very different 20 years ago 50 years ago 100 years ago with the same objects what our narrative today our reading of it today is exactly 180 degrees different than what it was before you got out that how the bhavdajilad museum was like an experiment and even in the present it seems to be an experiment because hmm. if i'm not mistaken it's one of the few museums that follow uh, the ppp model the private public partnership model so how do you situate that in the running of the museum compared to say other traditional museums how is it different what are the advantages disadvantages so i think a public private partnership module has been very successful for the bhavdajilad because it's a government property the government the municipal corporation of mumbai owns the collection the good part about this is um that the maintenance and the basic funding which is meant to give staff salaries comes through from the government it's subsidized it's not depended on a donor's whims and fancies so that gives it security the private funding enables our education activities and exhibitions which can be very expensive sometimes with private funding coming for that that also becomes subsidized for the museum and it can focus on its core mission without having to worry too much about you know some sort of fundraising activities that puts additional pressure on a short staff museums but that really helps so and especially now in times like these i have really thought a lot about this ppp model in in times where we see every day there is a news from usa saying museum staff has been told to let go or they don't know when they'll be back or whether they'll have a job to come back to these moments make me appreciate how government backing and government funding to indian museums it's so so important uh, there are a few private museums in india and they're all going strong because the donors are the owners they are not just party doing it for csr and that really helps and of course you have to be careful being a public private partnership you have to walk a very very fine line between trying to be experimental but yet keeping in mind that you are a government space and by that nature open to all sort of criticism that may be thrown at you, you museums should of course be open to criticism but even more so when you're a government museum and you have certain restrictions to honor and to understand so only a certain portion of museum collection is on display while most of it i believe is in the repositories so could you shed some light on maybe selection of certain items to display hmm. and how does the process look like in bhavdachilad we are in a way lucky that the collection is not mind boggling numbers we we have about 12500 objects in all 
counting like rare books and coins. So that's a small collection, and about I would say eighty three percent is on display. So that's a huge number. As we know, like museums have mostly five six percent on display most most of the times. So this means that uh, all our best objects are on display, or what we would term best to suit our current narrative. That said, there are exhibitions when we pull out objects that may suit that narrative better. Uh, like we have a collection of fossils and minerals and rocks that was pulled out for one particular exhibition, two thousand sixteen, for an artwork that looked at deep time and deep space as concepts. And this dialogue with um, contemporary or modern art, juxtaposing it in a more archaeological or historical collection, leads to newer narratives and a chance for us to rotate certain things. Uh, sometimes our objects will move cases again to suit something else, and you will not be able to. You'll have to look twice to see what are you seeing. Is this an object or is this a contemporary piece of art? Many people have sometimes missed. Of vitrines right in front because they thought that was a part of the museum's collection, so it blends in so simply. But at the same time, we I've noticed that people are drawn towards things that they can most easily relate to. You may have the best object according to all the curatorial staff as the forefront showstopper kind of a thing. People will gravitate towards one that they can easily understand. Which is why at the Baudajilat, the clay model collection, the map collection, is always is is the biggest USP than say smaller pieces, but which have more interesting detail name. Let me ask you three import three museums in India and three museums from outside India that have evoked these emotions in you that other people you think should go uh, visit. In India, it was the Prince of Wales Museum, which was among the first museums. I ever saw in in India itself. Then would be the Indian Museum in Calcutta, uh, which was very interesting. It was it was like a wonderland for me. Uh, and the museum in Bangalore, because I connected with it on so many levels. It's it's very similar to Bhavdajilad, and I I had a feeling of oh I'm home when I saw it. These three museums were very fascinating for me growing up, and even now. Abroad, uh, the first museum I ever went to in my life was the George Carver Museum in the U.S. Uh, about black slavery. And as a seven-year-old, when you don't understand the concept of what is apartheid or what is slavery, that that's a powerful thing. I think that has stayed with me since then, since I first saw it. That uh, the museum, uh, the Egyptian Museum in Turin, because I saw it before and post restoration. Within a span of five months, and the one at Bologna, which uh, Akash and I went to, that was amazing. That was a fun museum. Oh, and yes, honorable mention must be made, and this is the wackiest museum I've ever seen. Uh, the Museum of Criminology, Criminal oh, Anthropology. Yes. That's the wackiest museum I've ever seen. Turin, right? If I was mistaken, I think the hunt for the museum was as much <laughs> yeah fun as the museum itself. Yeah. We just couldn't find. So we were both lost in the streets. We didn't have internet. Maps were wacky. So we just walked around asking people, "How do we go to the crime museum?" Probably my and imagine, host was too kind. So yeah, yeah, yeah. imagine two brown people walking around asking white people where is crime. 
in our group in Italian. So that was fun. Tours, is it a regular feature at the museum? Yes, it was started in 2013 by our then curator for education. Every Saturday, Sunday, everybody, the entire staff had to, at 11.30, somebody had to take the English tour. At 12.30, you had to take it in Hindi or Marathi, depending on who your audience was. And earlier, it was the staff who had to do it themselves, volunteer the names on a timetable. Uh, then after two or three years, when uh, we started growing in terms of the work and in terms of programming, we realized just the staff doing all this was not possible. So we started training docents, hiring interns and docents to help out with programming. And now we have, in the last, since 2014, we have trained about 30 interns and 20 docents. Um, some of them who have been with us right from the beginning and some of them who have gone to work at Smithsonian, uh, intern at Smithsonian, did masters abroad, came back and are now working in different museums uh, around India. And that's fun. So I would suggest everybody who goes to Bombay to visit the museum and do these tours. Well, I'm assuming they're free. Yes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Even if you're not, tell them you're from the podcast and I guess Ruta will ensure it's free. <laughs> All our program, public programming is free. I think the last time we did a paid thing was a while ago. So we we managed to figure out ways to, um, in a way, subsidize everything we do so that the people don't have to bear costs. Um, that's also a way to get people in because, honestly, I get why some museums have to charge sometimes, but we are luckily in the position where somebody else is helping us with the funds required to run these education programs. So as much as we can, we want to offer free experience. Um, this way, we ensure that even Bhajiwala from the Baikala market next to the museum comes and has the same experience as somebody who can afford to pay 200 rupees for an activity can. That's wonderful. So I'd like to say on that note, the International Museum Day is soon. So I would suggest all of you to go to the museum and enjoy. Oh, thank, thank you. Thank you, Ruta. My pleasure. Thank you all for tuning in. That's all for today. Keep us posted and let's keep the conversation going on Twitter and Instagram at chipinawayind and shoot us an email at chipinawayind at gmail.com. So see you next time. Bye-bye.